Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you are all doing well. The Christmas trees are up, so Christmas must be coming. Uh, what a wonderful time Christmas is, but uh, I don't have a Christmas message, and uh, I'm not going to go back into the book of Acts quite yet. We'll be doing that next week. This morning, I, I thought I'd continue a little bit from the theme from last week's message. As you remember, we were in Romans chapter 8 last week, and one of the last verses that we landed on was Romans eight twenty-eight, which uh, is a, a comforting verse. And our chapel over the past few weeks, and even over the year, we've had a number of challenges. We've had a number of uh, hardships. And if we look around, we'll see that there are people who are not with us that we wish were still here. Uh, certainly a sad thing, and it always makes it harder when things like this happen around Thanksgiving and Christmas. That seems to be a, a popular time. My own grandparents went, uh, they passed on uh, around this time of year as well. I think my grandma, I mixed the two up. I think my grandma's the one who died around Thanksgiving, and my grandpa's the one who died around Christmas. So, uh, well, the holidays are a good, enjoyable time to be with each other, we always feel the loss of those who have passed, and we're feeling that even this week. So I'd like to look at this verse in light of the challenges that we face. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. How does this work out? Uh, what are these all things? When, how can we be sure that they ultimately are working for our good? So that's going to be our theme this morning. And uh, if you've been here, well, as long as I've been here, you may not necessarily hear anything new, but I think this will be a, a good reminder for all of us in this time. And I think we can all take comfort in what is found here. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessings on this time that we have. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have this morning to look at your word. We pray that as we do so, we would find comfort. We're thankful that you are the God of all comfort. We're thankful that you know us even now, small as we are, insignificant as we may seem to be, and yet you know us, you've set your love on us, and you've demonstrated this by sending your Son to die for us. So I pray uh, that we would see this great love. I, I pray that we would feel this great comfort that you have this morning and in the days and weeks to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible, as we know, recognizes human suffering, recognizes human loss. Many people get the wrong impression, especially if you look into the prosperity sections of Christianity, that the Christian life is, is filled with nothing but the good things, uh, right? Uh, they, they may reread the passage uh, that we're in this morning, and we know that all things are good uh, because of, uh, and we know that all things are good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that's not necessarily the case. We know that there are bad things in this life, and the Bible recognizes this as well. We live in a sinful world, and in a sinful world, there comes pain, there comes 
hardship, there comes death. And being a Christian, well, that's not really an escape from our worldly suffering. That's not an escape from hardship. In fact, uh, in coming to Christ, hardships uh, may even increase. There's something really interesting that I heard. I was listening. I don't even remember who the preacher was, but he said something interesting. He said that the day that you came to Christ, it was like a massive target was painted on your chest for the evil forces of the world to go after, to try to tear down, to try to destroy, to bring accusations against. So we know that the Christian life, it's not an escape from suffering. And this is something that we see very clearly in the life even of Jesus and his apostles. They were persecuted. uh, They were arrested. The apostles were killed even for Jesus' sake. The apostle Paul says that when we are joining him, we are joining him in his suffering for the gospel. And this has always been the way it is in this side of eternity for the followers of God. We uh, can look through the Old Testament to see a history of the death of the prophets and the, the hardships that they faced. This isn't necessarily recorded, but this is found in tradition of Isaiah being sawn in half for his trouble as a prophet. We have Elijah after his great experience on Mount Carmel, then needing to flee from Jezebel, fearing for his life, basically just wishing he was dead. And then we look at the apostles, and it's only within a couple years where we see the first of the twelve, James, the brother of John, martyred, put to death by Herod and Peter, arrested for the same. So this shouldn't be unexpected for us, the sufferings that we undergo in this life. Uh, much of the time, our suffering can seem quite meaningless, though, especially when we're in the midst of it. The problem with us being small people is we have a very small picture of what's going on in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And we don't always get that bigger picture. We aren't promised that bigger picture. And we can feel this sense of suffering when we experience loss can't we? Uh, When we lose possessions, uh, I'm I'm sure we've all lost vehicles, had vehicles go out on us, and uh, there's no, there's always a worse feeling. Whenever someone says there's no worse feeling, it's always hyperbolic, but there's no worse feeling when you're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, uh, your vehicle is no longer working, and you bring it to the mechanic, and they say, well, it's going to cost more than this is worth the fix. We've all been there, right? Uh, But a vehicle loss, that's a a small thing in the grand scheme of things. We may lose our position, like a job, uh, a a sense of uh, a a security or something. We may have the loss of our health uh, in sickness, injury. We may lose friends, even. Uh, One of the sad things about Uh, the betrayal of Jesus as he was betrayed by someone who was considered a friend, Judas Iscariot. But perhaps in this life, some of the greatest loss we can experience is when we lose a loved one. And this loss is perhaps the most intense feeling. And 
that feeling of loss is something that never entirely goes away. And we're aware of this. It ebbs for a while, but we know that the wounds can be reopened quite easily. And as we're in this place of suffering, we may, leave, we may ask the question, why? Right? We, we know, right? We're all good Christians. We're all good theologians. Uh, uh, we all know that all things work together for good, but that is not really a satisfying answer when I am in the midst of suffering, is it? Right? And what we're really asking is, God, why is this happening? Why did it have to be this way? Why are things going this way? And the answer isn't always easy for us to see. It's not always easy for us to accept, and we may not ultimately get it. Well, as we know, one of the whys, sin, is ultimately to blame for the tragedies of life. Right? Adam, by his own volition and knowledge of the consequences, rebelled against God. And, enter, and sin entered into this world. And we, as children of Adam, are born with this sinful nature. And uh, this sinful nature impacts all things. As we already read uh, in uh, last week, we even read how creation itself is subject to futility because of what Adam did. And we're seeing that all around us. Every bad thing happens because of that sin that is in this world. Uh, it all flows downhill from that one sinful rebellious act of Adam being multiplied and snowballing by our own sin uh, leading to the world that we are in now. So we might ask the question, well, why doesn't God just fix it, right? Right before Eve even talked to the snake, why didn't God step in and say, no, don't do that? Right before she ate of the fruit, why didn't God step in and smack it out of her hands? In our own lives, we may think, well, why didn't God just stop it? Why didn't God intervene? You know, God knew that uh, those cancer cells were building up. Why didn't he just make them go away? God knew that there were heart issues happening. Why didn't he just snap his fingers and clear it up? Right? God knew what would happen when my loved one got in their vehicle and started going down the road. So why didn't he just stop them? Well, we ask these questions, why? Where was God? What was he doing at this time? Well, one answer that the world might give and that we might take a little bit of comfort in in some time, when we begin to ask some of these questions, some people may answer, well, God didn't really have anything to do with it. That's something we might get. This answer, and what this answer does is it distances God from the tragedy of our life. And that's how some people will view the world, is God set things in motion, and then he kind of just stepped back, and he, he's just letting people do what they want. And these bad things that happen as a result of what people want, well, God, ooh, he's, he's a hands-off God. Have you ever heard the phrase, God is a gentleman, right? Uh, God just, he'll just let things go. Well, that may be a comforting answer for uh, a little bit, but then we also have to recognize it's not necessarily a biblical answer, and it's not necessarily an answer that'll help us feel any better, will it? Because the reality is, if God is not present or doesn't have anything to do with death, with tragedy, with the bad things that happen in our lives, well then, if God isn't present there, if God isn't active there, if God isn't working there, how can we say that he is 
in the good things in our lives, right? There's all kinds of things that we rightfully thank God for, but if God is so hands-off that these tragedies that happen in life, woof, God is completely separate, how can we say that even these good things ultimately came from God? How can we say that God really has anything to do with our lives? Is God really blessing us? Can we really count on God intervening in anything that we're doing? So, uh, that answer to the question, why am I suffering? God didn't have anything to do with it. That's not really a satisfying answer. Here's another possible solution. Well, God wasn't able to intervene. And this answer gets God off the hook, right? Well, it's not God's fault. He he wasn't able to do anything about it. However, uh, we run into the same problem as the last time. If God isn't able to intervene in this, well, how can I trust that he's going to intervene in anything that's happening in my life? Is God so incompetent and unable to uh, prevent things that, you know, things just kind of run amok and he's just there to try to pick up the pieces? Well, that's not the case. We see that God is constantly intervening in our lives and the lives of those around us, often without us even realizing it. One, uh, one great case uh, one great instance of this is found in the book of Genesis, and I always thought this is a, a really interesting passage. Genesis chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 6, where back in the time of Abraham. And Abraham, is, uh, and Abraham journeyed from there towards the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her. And then he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though righteous? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself also say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then, here's the key verse. And then God said to him in the dream, Indeed, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also held you back from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God is able to prevent a tragedy in this case. So that means God should be able to uh, intervene and prevent tragedies in any case right? And that's the truth. In fact, this is something that we often miss, that God is constantly at work in this world restraining evil. Do you know how many tragedies and acts of wickedness and sin and depravity that we've missed out on even just this morning? Because God is constantly at work in restraining evil in this world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7 uh, says this, one second, get there. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 uh, says, uh, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So God constantly restraining lawlessness, wickedness in this world. So uh, it's not that God isn't able to intervene. He's constantly intervening. That's a a reality. So uh, then how do we answer the question? Well, why did God allow this to happen? Well, maybe God just doesn't care. 
Maybe God doesn't care. Well, this may describe the God of deism, right? And that's the idea of the God who kind of sets things in motion. Then he just steps back and says, well, your world now, I'll let you do what you want with it. And I'm really indifferent to it, right? Well, that may describe that God, but that's not the God of scripture, right? Uh, God cares. He cares about his creation. He cares about what's going on in our lives, In fact, God cares even about the small things in this world. God cares about even the birds, right? I love that illustration of Jesus uh, where God is aware when a sparrow drops and dies. And as uh, David Glock, one of the teachers at Emmaus, uh, put it this way, he said, God attends the funerals of sparrows, right? So if God cares enough about the sparrows to go to their funerals, how much more does he care about us? If God feeds the birds of the air, there's birds of the air, right? What are they? Uh, If he feeds them, how much more will he take care of us? So, of course, God cares, and he even relates to us to some degree, Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, when he is facing death, when he is facing tragedy, he weeps in light of that tragedy, right? So God cares, okay? So then, if God cares, why is this still happening in my life? Well, here's another possibility. Here's something else that may be raised. Well, God must just be punishing me for my sin, and that's why these bad things are happening. That's why I'm facing this tragedy in my life. Well, we know the book of Hebrews clearly teaches that God uh, chastens those whom he loves, and we see that in scripture. We see God taking away David's son after his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, However, does that mean that the suffering I endure in my life is because of my sin? Well, not necessarily. While suffering is indeed a result of sin, and we mentioned that at the beginning, all of it flows downhill ultimately from sin. Uh, We need to be careful to not pin it on certain specific sins. And we can look at Job, for example, as someone uh, who, who fits in this category, right? Job suffered greatly in his life, but It wasn't for any sin that he had committed. And a good portion of the book is devoted to Job's three friends basically telling Job, hey, Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something bad because we know that stuff like this only happens to evil people. So you better start confessing, Job. And Job is saying, no, I didn't do anything. And if you read at the beginning of the book, uh, you'll say, God say of Job, look at this guy, righteous, upright, model citizen of the kingdom of heaven right here in this world. Look at Job. Can't do better than him. So it wasn't for any sin that he committed. Well, people, and, uh, when people result, uh, or when people suffer as a direct result of sin, this is usually revealed, right? God's not going to leave us in suspense, right? If I'm suffering because of sin, I'm going to know, right? Jesus tells us that uh, when tragedy strikes, it's not necessarily because uh, the one, it's, uh, those who die weren't necessarily any worse than the others, right? Remember the tower that Jesus spoke of that fell and then the blood of the Galileans that were shed by Pilate's soldiers, and they're asking him, well, did this happen because they were worse than anyone else? And Jesus said, well, no, 
but unless you repent, you will likewise perish, right? We can see uh, national sins and things like that, God warning a nation, if you do this, then this will be the result, and we can uh, really make ties right there, but in our personal lives, it can be kind of difficult to do those things, right? Uh, Rather, the tragedy in this life, we can't necessarily pin it to these things. Look at the man who was born blind, for example. Remember, when uh, the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents, right? That's the kind of theology that they had. And Jesus said, well, it wasn't because of him or his parents that he was born blind. Uh, It was, it's ultimately to show the glory of God in him. So why is it that we suffer here in this life then? Why do these things still happen? God is in control. God loves us. God cares. And yet these things happen. Well, they happen and they do not happen apart from God's hand. That's something we need to understand, right? This suffering that we endure in this life, there is a purpose to it. And we can know that there is a purpose to it ultimately because it comes from the hand of God. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 verses uh, 37 through 38 says this. Let me turn there real quick. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 37 through 38 says this. Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Why should any living person or any man complain because of his sins? Similarly, Psalm 33, verses 9 through 11, says this, Psalm 33, 9 through 11 says this, For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. So everything that happens in this world is according ultimately to the counsel of Yahweh. It is something that he has allowed. It's something that there is a purpose for. R.C. Sproul says something interesting, the guy who does the video series on Sunday night. He says that if there is one single molecule in this universe running loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no single guarantee, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Why is that? Because God says that I am over all things. I am in all things. I am working through all things. God has purpose in all things, and those all things even include our suffering. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10 says this, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. So big picture, all things 
work together for good for those who love God. But those all things need to ultimately be in control by God. So as we're pondering this, as we're getting this big picture of God, and it's, we can't really grasp it. This is beyond us uh, to some degree, right? Uh, but as we're trying to grasp this picture, we, we ask the question, okay, how does this help me? How can I hold all of this together? How, how can I, uh, on the one hand, still recognize I'm suffering, bad things happen in this world, bad things happen to me, Scripture calls them bad, while at the same time know that God is there, God loves me, He is working through these things, He is in these things, these things ultimately came from in His hand. So how can these things help me? Well, uh, as we're pondering this, we may begin to feel even sad, angry. We may want to know why. Why did they have to go this exact way, God? Couldn't it have gone a different way? Couldn't you have made things a little bit easier? Uh, Couldn't I have missed out on some of this? In fact, there's uh, several psalms that are devoted to this very thing, right? Uh, Psalms of lament, they are called, and those psalms are basically complaints against God. They're, they're very interesting. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 44, and I'll show you an example of, of this, of uh, the psalmist as he, he's trying to work through these unanswerable questions. He's face, uh, the people of Israel have faced defeat uh, in, in battle at this point in time, and the psalmist says this, starting in verse 9, Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have plundered us for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten. You have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for no amount, and you have not profited from their price. You have made reproach to our neighbors, a mockery and a derision to those around us. And if we go down, we'll look and see. He says, All things have come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And this is what the psalmist is essentially saying. He's saying, God, I have done everything right. Why are things still going wrong? And the hard part about this is there's not necessarily an answer given. And many of the questions we ask, we may not necessarily get a specific answer. Now, this doesn't mean that God won't answer our our questions. It doesn't mean that we won't eventually see certain things. And I think in eternity, uh, when we have that full picture view, we'll be able to look at every instance in our lives, every instance of pain, suffering, even sin, and we'll be able to see it in God's grand scheme of things. And we'll be able to say, oh, I see what he was doing. I see what's going on here. But we're not there yet, are we? Right? So we can feel these uh, emotions where we're asking, you know, God, what's going on? And we're not answered our questions. One thing that we can't do, one thing we need to be careful to not do is charge God with being unjust, right? Uh, As we face these things in our lives, we can't say, well, God just isn't 
fair. Well, of course God isn't fair, but what we mean to say is God is not just, right? We're, what, we're trying, what we're saying is this isn't right that God is not doing this. Well, God can't be charged with injustice. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. We can't charge God with injustice. Let every man be a liar and God be found true, right? Uh, God ultimately only gives us good things. The things that he gives us do not lead us to sin. God is not a tempter, right? Uh, as James tells us, he's the father of lights who gives uh, good gifts to his children. Something we need to recognize in all of this is when we're pondering these things, we need to recognize that God is God and we are not. And we ultimately need to get to this point if we're really going to have any understanding. God is God and we are not. God doesn't always reveal to us why things happen in our lives. And we need to understand that God is not obligated to. The secret things belong to the Lord. God's ways are beyond us and God is not answerable to us, right? And this is the place that we need to get. And this is where faith and trust come in, right? This is why we need to trust in God. This is why we need to have this faith in God, because there are things that are going to happen, then we won't always know why that they are happening, but we can trust and know that they are ultimately working together for us and for our good. This is the lesson that we learn from the book of Job. As we read through the book of Job, uh, towards the end, Job comes face to face with God, and it's a, a great and dramatic scene, and, and God is basically saying to Job, all right, Job, you think you know better? You think you know the way things ought to be? He, and then he begins to challenge him, all right, where were you? when these things happen. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Come on, Job, you're a smart man. You know how things ought to work. Tell me how they ought to work. Uh, Calling him out on this, and what's Job's response? He says, I shut my mouth. I submit in dust and ash. You know, I didn't know who I was talking to at first, but I know now, right? And that really is how it is. Uh, that's how it all often is at some times. Now, most of us in here are, are parents, and if we aren't a parent, then we've been under our parents. And we all know that as parents, sometimes our kids aren't going to know why we tell them to do what they are to do, right? And as kids especially, uh, what's the number one question that kids ask? Why? right? <laughs> and, uh, and parents, what's the answer that you always will default back to? Because I said so, you know, and sometimes that's how it is even in this creation, even with God, right? As parents, you know, we should know what is best for our children. We should know the best way that they are to act, and we seek to instruct them in that way, and they don't always see it. They don't always know it, right? But it, at the same time, you know, we're the parent. We're the one that has authority. And in a very similar way, uh, we see that God 
as our loving Father is graciously working in our lives, ultimately to conform us to the image of his Son. And he knows the best way to do that, and he is doing that in his way. That's why we read, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Right? So we can know that these things that are happening in our lives, though they may not necessarily be good, right? just as we as children, we may not necessarily like the things that our parents tell us to do, something that we can know is that it is ultimately for our good. Right? Ultimately for our good. We can see a, a picture of this uh, in the life of Joseph. I think of jo- Joseph back in the book of Genesis, uh, the, son of, uh, uh, the son of Jacob. Remember the great pain that surrounded the life of Joseph, right? Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken to what may as well have been the other side of the earth, right? When, when you don't drive and you have to walk hundreds and hundreds of miles, anywhere may as well be the other side of the earth. He's taken all the way to Egypt. What are the odds of him ever seeing his family ever again? Probably pretty low, right? Betrayed, sold into slavery, torn away from his family. Think of the pain that his father, Jacob, went through, weeping, Sorrow, to the, almost to the point of death, right? His brothers, think of their evil motives that caused this, right? They hated him. They wanted him dead at first. It was only God's intervention, as we saw, that preserved him alive. But what do we get when we, what do we see when we get to the end of the story? What happens with Joseph? Well, it's through Joseph being brought into Egypt that he is ultimately put in a position where he saves Egypt, right? There's a great famine coming, and Joseph uh, is able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, and they're able to prepare for this famine. And they're able to supply food, not only for their own country, but for the surrounding nations. And uh, Joseph's family back at home, what do they do? They know there's food in Egypt, so they go, and even they are saved. We read... In uh, Genesis, after there's a great reconciliation and his brothers realize who he is and that he's still alive and his father realizes this, after his father dies, his brothers are are scared because, uh uh-oh, Joseph's going to come, dad's out of the way, he's going to get his revenge, right? But what's Joseph's response? As for you, you meant evil against me. And that's the truth, right? When we look at the things that happen in our lives, the tragedies that happen in our lives, they all flow down from sin. It's a result of sin, evil. That's the word that we can, that we can uh, we distill all these things down to, evil. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The same thing, the same action, his brothers committing that evil act, and yet we see God is there overriding it, bringing out good in it. We know that God uses tragedy in our lives ultimately to glorify himself and bring about the best for us. 
God uses the suffering in our lives to draw us closer to him, right? Uh, Let's look at the death of Christ. The death of Christ is the greatest act that God has ever performed, and yet it's the most wicked act that mankind has ever performed. If you want to see good overriding evil, look at the cross, right? God put Jesus to death on a cross, an evil act by mankind in taking the only sinless man to ever live, the only innocent person to ever live and condemn him to death, and yet it was the greatest good that God has done because he offered Christ as a propitiation for our sins. It's through the death of Christ that we ultimately have forgiveness of sins. God is both the just and the justifier. So, as we live in this world, as we face the challenges and hardships of life, we can do it with hope. We can do it with the hope that God has not left us alone in the world, but has ultimately promised to reverse the work of Satan. Think of all the evils that have taken place in this world. Not a single one. All the tragedies that have happened in your lives, not a single one has gone unnoticed, and not a single one will be unaccounted for in the grand scheme of things. Everything will ultimately be restored. And that's what the good news is. It's a message of restoration. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We have no fear of death. We know that there's going to be a resurrection. We know that even this world will be changed. We even know this world will be renewed. We know this world will be restored. And even while we're in this world, we're not alone. We're even relieved. We're given the promise of relief from the sufferings that we face even in this life. As we read last time, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us this great hope that we have within us. We know that the Lord Jesus is ultimately going to return and deliver us from it. Whether we're here, whether we're in the ground when it happens, we know it will all be reversed. So how do we live in light of this great hope that we have? Well, we are ultimately to give thanks and rejoice in all things. In all things. Now, don't get me wrong, not for all things, but in all things. Knowing that they are ultimately from God. They are part of God's story of our life that he is writing. And we know that they are for our good. We know that it is building up to a happy ending. We can rejoice that the Lord is with us. Now, it doesn't mean that there is no time for weeping, right? We are to weep with those who weep. Jesus wasn't even above weeping. But as we weep, we can do so not as those without hope who are in this world, but as those with that hope. We can trust God in all things, knowing that he has a purpose for all of these things. And we should be reminded of the peace and hope that are found ultimately in Jesus Christ. This is all true because of what Jesus has done, right? All true because of his perfect life his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, because he is alive today, interceding for those who draw near to him. If that weren't true, then, yeah, the sufferings of this world would be meaningless. It would be a world that is 
dying and will ultimately, would ultimately just flicker out with no hope. But because of Jesus, we know that there is hope of a restoration, hope of a reversal. And because God is working in all things and we know that he loves us and he has a purpose for everything, and we can know that those purposes that God has for us are ultimately for our good. So let's, uh, this has always been a favorite verse of mine and I, I hope it would be a favorite of yours too, but I hope this would be a comfort to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I pray that we would be comforted this Christmas season, comforted in light of what Jesus has done, comforted in light of that empty tomb. Because we know all the sufferings of this world, well, there's going to be one ultimate reversal. A reversal that's already begun. Death was reversed in the case of Jesus. Death will be reversed in our case as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have, this comfort that you give us in your word. We're thankful that you are there. We're thankful that you know of the difficulties that we're facing. We're thankful that you have a purpose even in those. We're thankful that we can have this great hope that you indeed love us and you show your love by sending your son to die on the cross for us. I pray that we would be comforted at this time and the time to come. And I pray that uh, people would see in us a great hope, an otherworldly hope because of what Jesus has done. Let our lives be a reflection of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.